Welcome to the Inkling Podcast. I'm Rivka Brown. And I'm Helen Charman, and we edit the Inkling magazine. Each episode of the podcast has a theme that ties together essays from our archive. It will have three parts, an editorial, a feature, and a pull quote. This episode's theme is bodies. Quite a few of our essays touch on bodies. The milk fetish, Ellen Nicholas's take on the commodification and fetishization of milk and, by extension, women's bodies, my essay, Black Bodies Matter, which looks at American police brutality through the lens of phenomenology, Helen's Some Girls Are Bigger Than Others, which is about writing fatness, and Syvo Sullivan's The One With The Boobies, about the power of naming female anatomy. All can be found on our website. At the risk of stating the obvious, you can't avoid the human body. Even its absence is a presence. It has become a truism that we live in a society increasingly caught up in an endless contradiction between the freedom to explore and celebrate bodily differences and the preservation of the same old oppressive ideas of beauty and bodily appropriateness. This contradiction is perhaps best captured in the dubious employment of feminist language by campaigns selling cosmetics, something The Guardian's acting women's editor Nasheen Iqbal has called femvertising. The most notorious femvertisement is of course the Dove campaign for real beauty, which sold soap on a mantra of loving the skin you're in. It's hard to imagine a more baffling contradiction than that Unilever, the Dutch multinational that owns Dove, also manufactures Fair and Lovely, a skin-lightening product marketed to women of colour in the global south. In the wake of the American election, discussions of bodily identity have taken on a new urgency. In a recent episode of This American Life, the comedian Janelle, who is African-American, tells Neil Drumming that after last Tuesday, my body is just on alert. Citizens like Janelle have been put in actual bodily danger by the election of a racist, misogynistic, homophobic president and vice president an event Judith Butler referred to on the latest episode of Talking Politics, quoting Jacqueline Rose, as the legitimization of the unconscious. Tana Hesse Coates argues in Between the World and Me that the police reflect America in all of its will and fear. So, now, does its president. With Donald Trump about to enter the White House, it's difficult not to feel that talk of diversity in the mainstream media has been merely a form of lip service paid to cultural buzzwords. This serves only to reinforce the norms of the distinctly capitalist economy our bodies are valued within, intensifying the vulnerability of those bodies that this system deems irregular or illegitimate. How, then, to create a language that performs rather than simply describes diversity? When discussing diversity, it's difficult to strike a balance between carving out specific, embodied subject positions and being reduced to them. Identity politics can become more confining than freeing. Obviously, I speak, as we all do, from within my own body. I'm a white, cis woman with all the attendant privilege and ignorance. In this respect, what you choose to read, who you choose to listen to and engage with, has the potential both to shield us from, and make us aware of, the blind spots in our own vision. If we're to truly try and appreciate bodily diversity, we can't just proclaim what we know. We must listen for what we don't. 
In this episode of the Inkling Podcast, we're bringing up the bodies. For today's feature, we're joined by Charlie Brinkhurst-Cuff, one of the editors of Galdem magazine, and our very own Helen Charman, co-editor of The Inkling and author of Some Girls Are Bigger Than Others. Also joining us via Skype is Eleanor Careless, PhD student at Sussex, co-editor of The Literateur and author of The Milk Fetish. Welcome everyone, thanks for joining us on this episode's feature. Um, I thought I'd start the discussion by asking you, Charlie, a bit about Galdem, which has 70 contributors, all of whom are women of colour. Um, what's the idea behind the magazine and why did you set it up? Um, so yeah, Galdem is a magazine online and in print, um, which is written and produced by exclusively by women of colour. It was launched in September 2015, basically because... Um, as a sort of collective group we were aware that there is a disparity in how women of colour are both perceived and portrayed in the media and also just our faces aren't there uh, physically as well. We didn't know each other when it started basically it was sort of like an online thing which um, which grew into us like having meetings and, and stuff but um, we were all connected by yeah this thread of, of being of being very aware that there was something wrong in in British media. And what kind of content do you try and produce to kind of counterbalance that? So for me, I'm the opinions editor. So what I aim to do is is to give the vo- voices to and elevate voices of women of colour from really diverse backgrounds. So would that be um, our Skin Lightning series, which we we did um, last year, I think it was around December time, which was looking at the ways uh, women can be, uh, darker skinned women can be affected by pressures and Eurocentric beauty standards to lighten their skin using really dangerous creams and lotions and potions. Or a more recent piece, which I'm working on at the moment with a a woman who is... um, who's blind and she's uh she's written this beautiful blog about sort of dealing with the pressures of blindness being a woman of color and and how she has managed to sort of regain her sense of identity through strangely but like really cool um she she's got a very young child and she's um she was really scared to go out of the house with with her baby and now she's developed this way of like putting her kid in a buggy and then she tows the buggy along behind her it's just a really nice blog so yeah we do all sorts really but um we also run events and yeah yeah i suppose it's interesting we mentioned earlier in the podcast the fact that you are obviously entirely correct that there is a complete scarcity of voices of people of colour, especially women of colour, um, online. But somehow diversity and terms related to it are kind of common currency. Um, And, you know, a lot of people um, talk about diversity because it's become so fashionable. Diversity has itself become a little bit vulnerable to exploitation, commodification and being, being used, I suppose, to to sell things and to attract hits rather than to actually change anything. How do you make that distinction? Yeah, I mean, you're entirely correct. An example that I always like to use when I'm sort of discussing this or thinking about it is um, I went along to a journalism diversity event at the Daily Mail. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, Yeah, Um, it must be about a year ago now. It was, obviously, it's ironic because it's Daily Mail and the type of content they produce, and all the speakers they had were old white men, and then they sort of like handed this big check over to a family uh, 
who were people of colour. Um, but like, you know, our voices weren't there and we weren't heard. And then Joseph Harker, who's one of the editors at The Guardian, he's a common, common editor. It was sort of like the drink reception afterwards and everyone was drinking champagne and, and like a, sort of patting themselves on the back and um, <laughs> about this amazing diversity event. And yeah, he sort of went around with a copy of their issue from that day um, which had an incredibly racist cartoon in it. It was to do with uh, Tom Jones, and he was he was getting his DNA tested because he thought he might be a bit black because so many people have told him, even though it's definitely just a Parmesan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously it could be. Like, I'm not sure what the results of the DNA test were. But anyway, this cartoon that this person had, had, had drawn up was just, like, showing uh, these sort of white DNA doctors or whatever going into the jungle with these sort of saggy breasted black women and like portraying black people as savages essentially and he just went up to the editors and was just like so you know you're holding this diversity event but what do you think about this cartoon that you published today and um they all sort of grumbled and sort of like held little impromptu meetings and looked very upset by the whole thing and then he left in this sort of blaze of glory and it was, it was brilliant i literally love that man he's yeah, yeah. that's amazing <laughs> so yeah, yeah i think you have to be very careful when you're talking about diversity and making sure that it is you know you are actually reaching the people who are disaffected or disadvantaged in society. Like, Galdem itself has got a problem because, you know, most of our contributors are are university-educated, middle-class women. I'm very aware of that, and that's why I try and reach out to lots of different people to write for us, but um, it needs to become more than sort of, yeah, buzzword, as I said. I think what you were saying about consistency is is really important, that it has to represent a radical shift in the value structure of an organisation, not just in one particular event, action, scheme. It's always a bit dubious when it's too freestanding somehow. I thought um, this might be quite a good time to bring in you, Eleanor, having written quite extensively in your article, The Milk Fetish, about the Nestle formula milk scandal and the kind of devastating consequences that the sort of marketing of Nestle's formula milk to women in the global south this is what you say. You say that encouraged by Nestle's marketing to consider the breast not as a source of nourishment, but a cosmetic sex symbol, women were persuaded to sub in expensive formula for breast milk. So that was the 1970s. I can think of a couple of examples myself, but I mean, in the same way as diversity is being kind of used or cynically exploited, do you think that we've moved on from this sort of cynical corporate exploitation of women's bodies for profit? I was thinking in relation to this this question recently about the recent study that's come out on the pill. The history of the pill um, is long and uh, rather sinister, rooted um, in eugenics and social cleansing um, in its early stages in the 1950s when it was being tested. But the fact that, yeah, very recently, just this year, we've had the first uh, sustained study. Um, I think it was on a million Danish women over the course of 13 years. Um, which uh, showed that the pill is absolutely linked to depression. Um, this, of course, is, is a, a very interesting um, development um, in terms of the pill originally, of course, being seen very much as a tool for women's liberation. Mm. However, the fact that it's, uh, in fact, something which clearly impacts on women's mental well-being to a great extent shows I think, the extent to which, again, women have been co-opted, or women's bodies have been co-opted by the medical industry, I suppose. 
In a way, it reminded me a little bit of David Davies' suggestion that we should screen refugees' teeth to determine their age. And this kind of feeling that there are certain bodies which are common property or manipulable in certain ways and, and how kind of disturbing that is. And I think that that's true of of women, but it's it's also like very clearly true with people of colour. I mean, that refugee example is, is a recent one, but I mean, there's the perennial example of people touching black people's hair. I mean, like, as if there are bodies which you can manipulate just kind of at will. I think um, it's really interesting, and I think the way that you're bringing that in, kind of in relation to the formula milk, and Charlie, what you were just talking about, about skin lightening creams and the way those are marketed, I mean... We mentioned the Dove Real Beauty campaign and the fact that Unilever also markets fair and lovely, the skin lightening cream. And I think that is really similar to, to what Ellen is saying about this idea of a norm, that you can be completely free within your sexuality as a woman if you take the pill. In the same way that kind of that Dove campaign is saying, no, we're relaxing our ideas of, of beauty norms, but you still have to fit within this incredibly specific thing. And also you have to, you know, both what Alan is saying about the medical establishment and this kind of idea of the kind of pill as just prescribed to any woman who's, whether she's sexually active or not, it can be prescribed to you for bad skin or for anything, kind of unquestioningly. And again, this idea that you will be the kind of beautiful that Dove tells you to be. You will be the kind of sexual that, you know, a kind of more general idea of normal reproduction and normal procreation forces you to be, in a way. It it seems like it is all linked in a kind of yeah. <laughs> depressingly, <laughs> you know, structural way. Yeah, that even, that I think this kind of goes back to what we were saying at the beginning, that diversity, when it is this kind of, gimmick has very implicit but clear constraints on it you can be diverse but only so diverse Mm. like you can be you know black but you still have to behave in a certain way or you still have to present or um, identify within certain kind of limits I'm interested in a kind of different question which I think touches all of you which is to do with identification so there's sort of two camps, one represented by people like Josie Long and Mae Martin, the comedians, who speak about how frustrating it is to be reduced to kind of binaries, like female comedian or queer comedian. Um, And, you know, there's lots of people at the moment collapsing those sorts of boundaries between body and gender. For example, Maggie Nelson, who we will quote later on. But then on the other hand, there's Gayatri Spivak, who's a post-colonial theorist who talks about something called strategic essentialism, which is where you, I suppose, deliberately essentialise your subject position for political effect. So blackness is a good example of that. People might identify as black when they kind of represent quite a diverse range of experiences within people of colour. Yeah, I, I suppose, obviously, you know, as part of Gaudam and in general as a as a black writer, um, I'm sort of hyper aware of, of the way in which I have to categorise myself. And it definitely has its detriments. It means that 99% of the time when I get an editor who's asking me to write something, it will be something to do with race and that's because I'm categorised as a black journalist, a black female journalist. But at the same time I think for a lot of women of colour we're reclaiming 
the labels that have been pushed on us for so long. In terms of political blackness, which I think think is what you were sort of touching on before, the sort of argument I made in this piece for the New Statesman was that it's something that's best left in the past. Nowadays, at least, because it's not well known amongst the generation of people coming up, it served its purpose as a unifying structure enabler in in the 1970s and 80s when when there was less ethnic minorities in the UK and we needed a banner to come underneath but I think now we're able to come together in other ways that don't rely on um, outdated terminology. I suppose though I do feel a responsibility to essentialize in in some senses because when identification becomes too individualised, it kind of distracts a little bit from the politics of your position and inputting all of the terminology or all of the labels that I might identify with distracts from the fact that I am white, for example, in the context of a discussion about race or Jewish in the context of a discussion about religion. And so I think sometimes identifying the essential aspect of your identity that is relevant to a particular discussion or a particular context is is important. I think this is where, for me, kind of the catchphrases and the sort of slogans, the 140 character type expressions that we're given to now are quite dangerous because, you know, for example, Twitter, when you retweet someone, you're reproducing what they've said as if it is infinitely reproducible, but overlooking the fact that who retweets what, who quotes what, who reproduces what online content matters a lot and you know people kind of feel at liberty to quote let's say Chris Rock saying something which could be construed as racist and it's you know oh but he said he said this so it's fine it's like no but but he's said this and in this context at this time and I think sometimes the online environment deludes us a little bit about that kind of subject specific discourse yeah I think on black twitter in quotation marks. I say this as if it's a sort of homogenous thing and that like every black person is connected onto it, they're not, just to clarify. <laughs> There's been quite a few interesting arguments that kind of tie into that. One of the most recent ones was to do with light-skinned black people, mixed-race black people, and, and whether or not they should be able to call themselves black. Obviously being mixed-race and sort of having to come to the terms with the fact that I would be viewed as black by society at large, I was sort of taking the standpoint that, yeah, no, like, obviously I'm going to call myself black, like, you know, my blackness is what defines me within a lot of context, so therefore I, mm. I'm going to do that. And um, and that sort of turned into this horrible subtweeting of, <laughs> of different bits and like things where it didn't look like I was saying very nice things or, you know, and vice versa. Like, you know, when I was sort of like replying to a tweet that she just sent, but then she wrote another one which actually clarified what she was saying. And like, yeah, it's definitely dangerous. Like, and um, you see it all the time. I think, to be to be honest, though, I think most people are able to take it with a pinch of salt. Well, well exactly. I was, I was just thinking of the example, for instance, of um, the hashtag uh, Kill All Men, which has um, got a pretty turbulent, yeah. um, if short history to it. But I think um, very recently, Breitbart have really had a field day with, with hashtags or with tweets such as hashtag kill men as a way of creating like even more of a what was being called a white lash to, to that sort of discourse which again taken out of context um, just becomes ammunition 
So whilst we're on the subject of Black Twitter, I, I wanted to ask you about the hashtag melanin and accounts that post photographs or images of uh, black people and black beauty. Perhaps what you think are the, the kind of pros and the cons and whether you think that there is something potentially problematic about fetishizing a particular skin colour or appearance and how that might exclude or include people of colour. I think if I had had access to that when I was growing up, it would have been a positive thing. But... You know, there's still a certain type of black beauty which is acceptable. Light-skinned black women with, like, curly hair and not, not with a proper afro and, and with, like, more sort of, like, Eurocentric features like light eyes or uh, straight nose. And then and then keeping the desirable features which are black, like, which are, you know, in fashion right now. It's, like, big lips and a big bum and, like, uh, big boobs or whatever. For me, as a mixed-race person, it's a strange place to sit in because I'm aware of my sort of light-skinned privilege and, and the fact that um, within the scale of blackness, I am deemed more conventionally attractive. If it's coming from the black community, I don't think we could call it so much as a fetish as well. I think what is fetishistic is the accounts, like the sort of, um, I don't know if you've come across them, the sort of mixed-race uh, baby accounts. Have you ever seen that? Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's so strange. So weird. Um, a lot of them tend to be run by white women. I did a sort of article on this. And um, it is a lot of white women like, oh, how can I get the perfect mix of one quarter Italian, one quarter black, one quarter Chinese to make the perfect mixed-race baby who looks like... It's, so it's in Ab Fab. There's an yeah, episode, yeah, yeah. or not even one episode, there's, yeah. you know, she she's like, oh, I want to design a baby, yeah, and she has, yeah. like, fantasies of, like, walking through Portobello Market with a baby strapped to her. Yeah, you know. no, I am, I am, someone sent me that, the link to that YouTube clip after I wrote the article, and I was like, oh, if I'd never seen that before. I was just wondering, um, kind of, again, linking on from that, but in a slightly different way, um, I'm relating to um, the milk fetish, as we're kind of talking about my turn to say fetishization. Um, I was wondering what you all thought, but Eleanor, particularly you, about um, the brelfie, the breastfeeding selfie, but kind of coming on the heels of people complaining about women breastfeeding in public. Yes, it's a form of virtual resistance. Um, I think it, it sounds really great, this idea of, of, of a very affirmative response to, to, to those who seek to... Um, yeah, shame people who breastfeed in, in public. Mm. The ones that I'm looking at immediately are quite sort of um, aestheticised. They're quite um, sexy as well. Sort of, there's a lot of filter, I think, going on here. Quite, quite sort of saint-like um, mothers dressed in white. It looks like they're playing into that um, very old icon of like the, the nursing Madonna, who I talk about in my article, Mill Fetish, <laughs> a figure in, in early Christian iconography. Although we are used to seeing images of uh, the Virgin Mary and baby Jesus sitting on her knee very decorously, originally the Virgin Mary was portrayed breastfeeding baby Jesus, but then nudity, of course, became prohibited. Um, in portrayals of religious subjects as this sort of saintly aura of, of mother and child is I suppose very much part of um, what I call the, the milk fetish which is not, sorry, to distract from as you said the positive aspects of, mm. of, of Ralphie which would, um, I would hope counteract even if only virtually this hate-filled response to the sight of a woman breastfeeding in restaurants, which seems to me to be very deeply sexualised. It somehow strikes me that the breastfeeding selfie seems only really to offer a solution if it portrays breastfeeding as just a mundane part of women's lives. Not a sexy one, not a saintly one, just a boring one. Although I, I do think there is something empowering in a way about women who are mothers also 
being able to be seen as the sexual beings that they are as well and were before they became mothers and will continue to be afterwards that that doesn't necessarily play into the kind of slight tawdriness of people being called like milfs i mean this is a question that i address um in in the article that i wrote about how addressing political issues through the body is is quite important in between the world and me ta-nehisi coates talks about the way in which says all our phrasing race relations racial chasm racial justice racial profiling white privilege white supremacy serves to obscure that racism is a visceral experience that it dislodges brains blocks airways rips muscle extracts organs cracks bones breaks teeth you must never look away from this you must always remember that the sociology the history the economics the graphs charts regressions all land with great violence upon the body. And I think it's, it's the same, you know, when we talk about kind of sexism and women not being allowed to breastfeed, we don't really think about what it's like to feel physically humiliated as you're told to put your child away in a cafe. I don't think we, we really contemplate the mundane physical reality of racism and sexism. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I really like that quote that you just said. Um, I think especially... Uh, post-Brexit, one of the things that I was trying to do online was, um, and, and in person, speaking to people about it, was sort of highlight the actual daily physical, as you said, effects of um, of racism on, on people's bodies. There was one uh, woman I interviewed um, who sort of post-Brexit had her, like, hijab ripped off her head um, there was another woman, this was before Brexit, um, but just so it's, you know, illustrates that, you know, racism, you know, it didn't just sort of flare up when Brexit happened. Um, she was attacked by a man on a train while all the passers-by sort of um, just sat there and didn't do anything. She was sort of called like a monkey and the N-word and mm-hmm. like sort of literally every side you could think of under the sun. Um, yeah. Do you think that's partly why, I mean, this is kind of what I argue, um, do you think that's partly why there's this um, profusion of videos? You know, the, the minute something starts happening, an altercation with the police, uh, something happens on a bus, you know, there's all manner of videos that are now posted online where clearly people's instinct, as soon as some sort of racist or sexist begins to open their mouths, the instinct is to press record. And, and I'm wondering why that is. Why do people feel the need to document um, these everyday instances um I, I mean yeah that's such an important thing to bring up i think um it's really important to document them because you wouldn't have had a movement like black lives matter if it wasn't for the videos showing people proving to people who didn't understand or believe that this you know these acts of like, terrible violence could happen um i mean there's obviously like problems in in some cases where you know you have like my my friend on the train who was um you know may have been filmed but no one actually stepped in to help her but like on a day-to-day level um yeah the the recording the the sort of documentation of um of racism is um it is i hope going to help to change it and tackle it yeah um yeah do you think that perhaps the increased need for this kind of documentation comes from, as you say, people not fully believing that it happens because we're, as we all know, living in a very counterfactual world where people don't credit fact, mm-hmm. where people don't believe uh, data or you know uh, 
academic or intellectual or um, media analysis, they, they don't trust um, what they hear, so they kind of have to see it firsthand. Um, I don't think there's an increased need, I think there's always been a need, but it's just now we actually have the means to do it. Um, there's like, you know, the, there's no way that the racism that I've experienced in the UK is, is sort of, um, is worse than that faced by my mum growing up in the 70s, but they didn't have access to mobile phones that you could record. One of the uh, uh, really good video that sort of um, explains what you should do if you're, if you witness a, a racial attack sort of explicitly says, record it you know, you have a phone now, like, don't just stand there not doing anything or, like, get scared and run away, like, you know, try and try and document it. And, yeah. But do you think these specific kind of um, everyday examples have a different effect on people than, for example, reading a New York Times article about the number of uh, unarmed white, uh, unarmed black men even that have been killed by police or... Yeah, I think so. I mean, the um, on a sort of, uh, a more sort of... Um, journalism level um they you know they say that um video content is going to sort of overtake um uh news content because it impacts you more like you know seeing something visually seeing it happen to someone you know i'm it's very unlikely that i'm going to start crying a a, a, a a news article although there are a few out there which is um, <laughs> but uh you know there was a a few months ago there was a um, man who was arguing with his girlfriend at London Bridge, I think he might have even been a teenager or he was he was young anyway and um, it's a, a black guy and his girlfriend was white and someone misread the situation and thought that he had stolen her phone I think and he was violently tackled to the ground, they put a spit hood I don't know if you know what that is, it's when it's like a, like a, a sheath essentially like, and it's got like tiny little holes in it um, and over, over his head, so he kind of looked like this, like, prisoner. Oh, it was horrible. Um, and, you know, it was just this massive screaming match, and this was recorded, like, on a video. Um, and it and it meant that, you know, when this case went, you know, if it, if it was taken any further, he would have proof to show what happened and how he was treated, and the fact that, you know... Um, someone was filming meant that, you know, if the policeman had wanted to kick, kick him or, you know, mess him up a bit, as the police have been known to do, um, mm. then they wouldn't have been able to, or they would have been able to, but um, the consequences for them are likely to have been a bit more severe than rather than if they had just been word of mouth from yeah. passerby. I'm interested, um, as, as women, I suppose, what you all think about um, sort of similar similar kind of documentation, self-documentation by women of their experiences and and whether really whether really it's getting the right audience. Because I, I don't know, I mean like I feel slightly more like many people will have seen videos that you're talking about, Charlie, but I don't know whether so many people will be aware of um similar kind of um feminist uh, documentation of women's experience of, um, for example, like catcalling or whatever, and and whether there's whether both or whether sp- particularly women's experiences of sexism are kind of normalised or almost or almost kind of not taken um, seriously in the same way because because often the documentation isn't of violence, it's of kind of verbal abuse or. Um, less like tangible aspects of uh, sexism. There was that really um, that viral video, wasn't there, of that woman walking to New York for a day um, uh, and getting sort of 
repeatedly, insistently catcalled and followed. And I don't know if you guys saw that. Yeah. Um, yeah, which I think served to illustrate what it's like. But like, yeah, I mean, I totally agree. Like, you know, I tried to explain to my boyfriend how when I'm walking down his road late at night, like I will get, you know, followed or whatever else from like men on like regularly. And he just, he does understand it now. But before he was baffled. He was like, does that really happen? Like, does that really happen to you, like, every single time? No, yeah. it can't be every single time you're done. Because but... in a way, I think, what's what's sort of dangerous about um, the incidents that we were talking about earlier, the sorts of more violent incidents, is that they highlight the kind of hiatuses, like, when things really come to a head and there's something worth recording. But in a way, they distract attention from the very mundane constant forms of minor transgressions that you're subject to as a woman or a person of colour and that actually obviously the most um, shocking instances of racism are the shooting of unarmed black men but perhaps the most widespread aren't being given airtime yeah I mean I think it's yeah, it's it's hard to understand some of the experience and what it feels like to sort of, you know, just have little things happen to you, like someone refusing to, like, put money into your hand in a shop or, like, and not want to touch you or, um, or like, um, when when Gadam had our event at the V&A, the sort of, I had about six or seven old white couples come up to the door and just because we had a massive queue going on the block, which was obviously great, but um, it meant that, they you know, they wanted to come in and they, they couldn't, they had to queue and they were so baffled by like you know all these people of color like and it was just like <laughs> sort of this queue and like why why can't we get in like straight away like do we have to queue with all these people and like just, like and, it, and even while i'm explaining it it doesn't sound like a big deal but it's just all these little things they do build up and it's the same you know the sexism that you face as a woman and and in the journalism industry as well um sort of in in boardrooms and and having your ideas undermined and and um and you just know that it's because of your your gender or your perceived gender, um, and yeah, that's that's it's very hard to 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 allow someone into that world, to allow someone into your world, mm-hmm. and I think that's the reason why you know the Inkling, for instance, and Gadam, and all these other other uh, outlets that give a voice to to women um, needs to continue making waves because yeah. it has to come from us ultimately. Yeah. I think. Um, I'm interested, Eleanor and Helen, as literature students, how much you think, um, as Charlie says, um, literature specifically can intervene in highlighting, elaborating, writing the experience, the phenomenology of women or people of colour? Is it possible, actually, to ever communicate from one subjectivity to another? I mean, this is kind of a little bit maybe too much of a philosophical question but I'm just interested in how much you really think it is possible for literature or maybe you know cultural products in general to communicate lived experience I suppose I feel that a lot of the time what literature does and I don't mean this to sound too pessimistic but I feel like often what happens on the street then goes into literature rather than the other way around rather than experience which is articulated in literature going out onto onto the street (laughs) I think that any process of kind of trickle down experience out of literature into real life 
um, is is very very slow, and and I am not sure yet to what degree we can I don't know re- rely on that at all. Which is not to say that I don't think that it's it's uh, incredibly valuable uh, at the way in which literature um, does provide a space in which to articulate. I think exactly what Charlie was talking about, like the things that are so hard to articulate even to yourself, and and you know which you might experience um, in your everyday life and and not not perhaps talk about or talk about in a way that feels very vague or very inexact because it, it takes perhaps um, yeah the space and the um, creativity um, that, that is I guess uh, yeah enabled in literature to, to make that experience more articulate. I do hold hope for empathy as well. I think you can, you know, by by reading something about someone or by someone who is not like you, is a pretty good way of of thinking outside of your kind of own blinkered existence. I grew up in a very small village. Almost everyone in my year at school was white. I, you know, I had no idea until I got to university and I was suddenly reading so many interesting and different things and I was meeting all different kinds of people and it's only then once you've been exposed to other people's lives and their their voices and their way of speaking about themselves that you realise how little you knew and how completely ignorant you were of everybody everybody else. What you were saying about empathy brings me to kind of closing um, questions which is about vulnerability. You know, political movements often centre on power and empowerment and um, often carve out a space modelled on a very powerful figure. But perhaps, is there a value to vulnerability and of reminding one another of our bodily vulnerability and actually encouraging each other to think of ourselves as humans who have a duty of care to each other rather than pursuing sort of one-upmanship of like, no, actually, women are more powerful than men. No, we're all vulnerable human beings. We all have incredibly fragile, destructible bodies, as Tani Easy Coates writes about very poetically. He talks about how when you die, it's just game over. Part of me wonders whether vulnerability ought to be um, more central to, to some of these movements and actually they might benefit from promoting vulnerability rather than empowerment. There was a really interesting article, um, I think it was like Essence or one of the other sort of uh, black-run magazines in the States, and it was basically about black girl magic and how for women who aren't magical, who aren't... (laughs) Who are (laughs) Muggles. Yeah, muggles. (laughs) No match, isn't it, now? No match. Yeah, Yeah, um, how terms like black girl magic can be... Um, then you know they're not empowering because you don't feel powerful in yourself you know at present because you're not powerful because you're disabled or whatever else and while I sort of disagreed with the premise of our article it did make me think make me think about the use of the words like hashtag queens and all that kind of stuff like and um yeah us always having to be elevated and um, to be honest I think that is one of Galdem's strengths like we do a lot on mental health issues and you know self-care which is like super important important if you are you know a slightly more vulnerable person in society whether that be a woman or a colour or a person of colour um and taking a step back and and assessing your own mental health and taking time out if you if you need it and um yeah keeping the the doors of conversation open 
I was thinking as well about the way in which uh, putting us in vulnerability could be a, a very feminist politics, because rather than simply, um, I suppose, jumping on a, a patriarchal bandwagon, um, by which I mean, uh, if, if you sort of uh, emphasize the need to, to be strong and to fight and, and even to turn to, to violence, then I feel like very often that is simply um, rather that, that that's a way of, of simply replicating um, patriarchal norms rather than challenge, challenging them. And so, yes, a, a politics of vulnerability um, uh, could has the potential, I think, to be a, a very powerful feminist uh, kind of politics. I completely agree. I, I, I kind of was thinking about that as I asked the question that actually the idea of fighting and the idea of um, of kind of overpowering one's oppressor, although very effective historically, could also be construed as, yeah, quite masculinist and, and you know, testosterone-fueled. And, and perhaps there's a different way of going about seeking equality, bodily equality, um, that doesn't require fighting. And also that acknowledges that you live in your body and your body is fallible and physical and that kind of physical vulnerability goes hand in hand with an emotional and mental vulnerability as well. You know, I think a politics of vulnerability also plays into, like you say, and I was actually going to mention the articles I've read on Galdem that deal with mental health are brilliant because that's another thing that isn't really spoken about. And like what Eleanor was saying about the pill, you know, millions of women suffering from depression as the side effect of medication they're taking and and I think when it comes to to things like like mental illness strength is not a helpful term necessarily particularly when strength is seen to be a way to kind of pull yourself out of that hole whereas acknowledgement of of vulnerability is a way to then help create systems that Mm. that are coping mechanisms and can help you to exist <laughs> yeah it's it's really fascinating because there's um alongside sort of that movement at least within some of the online safe spaces and stuff that i'm part of there's also this movement of sort of righteous anger which is where hashtags like kill all white men come from which i personally don't subscribe to but i do have empathy for the people who do because the way that they're, they're express expressing their oppression <laughs> sometimes you do have to get a bit angry or else things don't change. So while I, I think my personal preference would totally be the politics of vulnerability, I like that, I like that term. I, I think, yeah, sometimes you do need fighters as well. Well, unfortunately, we've run out of time, but thank you guys for joining us. It's been so interesting hearing all of your thoughts and experiences. which was first published in 2015. The Argonauts is a memoir that defies generic conventions. Nelson charts her experience of pregnancy and motherhood alongside the story of her relationship with the artist Harry Dodge, who's gender fluid. Nelson is intimately concerned with the line between embodiment and expression, with queerness, feminism, and the importance of questioning overly determined categorization, what Dodge calls the cookie-cutter function of our minds. The Argonauts is constantly questioning the limits of language. This isn't just an issue of gendered pronouns, although of course this is a part of it, but of the fundamental ability of language to communicate experience at all.
Nelson interviews her narrative with excerpts from theorists, artists and poets, curating a kind of tapestry of individual experience. In this passage, quoting Aretha Franklin, Judith Butler and Denise Riley, Nelson inscribes the importance of allowing for myriad experiences and interpretations of gender identity, and indeed identity in general. Some people find pleasure in aligning themselves with an identity, as in, you make me feel like a natural woman, made famous by Aretha Franklin and later by Judith Butler, who focused on the instability wrought by the simile. But there can also be a horror in doing so, not to mention an impossibility. It's impossible to live 24 hours a day soaked in the immediate awareness of one's sex. Gendered self-consciousness has, mercifully, a flickering nature. A friend says he thinks of gender as a colour. Gender does share with colour a certain ontological indeterminacy. It isn't quite right to say that an object is a colour, nor that the object has a colour. Context also changes it. All cats are grey, etc. Nor is colour voluntary, precisely. But none of these formulations mean that the object in question is colourless. by Helen Charman and me, Rivka Brown, who also hosted this week's feature. Thanks to Something Else for the sound equipment, as well as to Splice TV for the recording space. Thanks lastly to our fantastic guests, Charlie Brinkhaskoff and Eleanor Careless.